I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If, if I'm guilty of anything, it's of, of being enthusiastic. Specifications could have been pulled back a little bit to, to have reduced the, the amount we had to achieve. This is a story about Kickstarter. You know it, the Brooklyn-based startup that popularized crowdfunding or the idea that using lots of small investments from backers, anyone can get money to make their idea into a real thing. Kickstarter gave rise to Oculus Rift, the Pebble smartwatch, a bad Zach Braff movie, a Veronica Mars reboot, and thousands of other products that probably would have remained locked away in someone's dreams without it. Kickstarter gives would-be entrepreneurs the opportunity to raise money to create a real company or a real product, or in this case, a real drone. But for every high-profile success, there seems to be a high-profile failure. This is the story of the Zano drone, which raised 2.3 million pounds in 2014 and failed completely by late 2015. Here's how Zano was pitched by its company, Torking, and its CEO, Ivan Reedman. What if you could now capture the bigger picture from any angle? allowing your creativity to soar to new heights, unleashing the true potential of possibility. Stunning aerial images, video, and panoramics delivered directly to your smartphone. What if all this was possible from a device that fits in the palm of your hand? Introducing Zano. Zano truly was a dream. I cover drones and motherboard, and the specifications on this thing are incredible, but not in the good kind of incredible way in the way that they are literally unbelievable. It was a massive, it was a massive claims. Um, you know, the, the ability of this drone to swarm, the ability of it to, to follow, reliably follow people, um, come back to base, um, obstacle avoidance, of course, all kinds of autonomous navigation. Um, and then also they were even promising facial recognition, 360 panoramas, inverted flying, night flying, glow in the dark, um, yeah, night cameras. I mean, it, it, it was really a shopping list of what everybody would ever want from a consumer drone. That was Mark Harris, a Seattle-based freelance journalist who just wrote a 13,000-word investigatory report about the rise and fall of Zano. This story drew me in for a couple of reasons. First, Kickstarter combines the best and worst of the internet. People come together to support a cause they believe in, but when it goes belly up, those people obviously aren't happy and you can get some mobbish behavior. Second, Mark Harris isn't just any freelance journalist. He's a freelance journalist who was hired by Kickstarter to do the investigation. As a journalist, that's pretty interesting. Uh, instead of Motherboard or The Verge or The Guardian doing this investigation, it was someone specifically paid by Kickstarter. More on that later. And third, I don't think this is the right word for Zano, but Kickstarter inspires some uh, delusional entrepreneurs, I guess you could say. 
check out the shitty Kickstarter subreddit and you'll find a whole bunch of people who have no experience whatsoever trying to fund Pokemon movies, blockbuster video games, new virtual reality systems, and all sorts of other crazy stuff. Most of these guys never get any funding, but sometimes they take off. Take the Scarp Laser Razor, which, if you saw the video, was an obvious scam, but still earned $4 million before it was banned by Kickstarter. Zano fell somewhere between. Let's start at the beginning. Um, so Ivan Reedman is a really lovely guy. I had a long, long, lots of long chats with him. He's really open. Um, you know, he pretty much is that image of that self-made technical whiz kid, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's in his, um, you know, 30s. He's, you know, he's in his early 40s now. But, you know, he's, he's got that enthusiasm, um, self-made programming as, you know, programming languages as a kid, you know, tinkering here and there. He started his own software um, consultancy company. Um, in Australia where he was born, then he moved to England uh, about a decade ago um, and sort of started building up little bits of technology clients here and there. He says he was working on lots of different things from robotics kits for, robotics kits for schools to drones and mind-clearing robots, um, which I couldn't always find any particular strong evidence for. Reedman put the Zano on Kickstarter with the flashy video showing what looked to be a functioning drone. The internet ate it up, and he raised 2.3 million pounds. There was a working prototype of the Zano, but it didn't have all the features he said it did. Now he actually had to make it. Here's what Reedman had to say. The original plan for Zano was to do a, a nano drone, uh, not, a, uh, not an quadcopter, but a, a drone so that it could fly itself. It was always going to be a uh, work in progress because it was designed to be continuously upgraded via software and uh, as new algorithms and uh, um, you know, new functions were added, we were going to be able to push them out over the internet um, to people's phones and then automatically upgrade the drone uh, on the fly. So that, 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 was the, that was a fundamental premise. The initial um, specifications were uh, a little bit ambitious um, and I you know, have to take responsibility for that. I, I am very enthusiastic and uh, you know, um, I think I got a little bit carried away with my enthusiasm and uh, pushed the specifications a little bit further than I should have done. Because the Zano raised so much money, it hit what's known as stretch goals on Kickstarter, meaning the company had to both perfect and deliver more than 10,000 drones in a time frame of just six months. And he also had to add a couple new features because uh, they hit those stretch goals. They certainly spent a little bit more at the start than they should have done. You know, leased some nice cars, filled, you know, everyone got the top of the end, you know, computers. And obviously they went on a bit of a hiring spree. Um, now, perhaps in, in retrospect, I would argue that they didn't really go on enough of a hiring spree um, because they had so much to do. Because their drone, I don't think, really ever had the capabilities that they showed in the video. They really had a lot of development work to do. And what it, it transpires is that most of the key development work was still held by Ivan Reedman, the guy who founded it and came up with the idea. Um, there weren't a lot of other technical voices on there. They were quite junior level people, the ones they did, um, they did hire. And they got them tinkering on things like the iPhone app and the Android app, which is great. And obviously they need to make those for this, for this smartphone control drone to work. Um, but they haven't got basic things like flight, obstacle avoidance, any of the navigational stuff, um, working either. So, you know, they, they started spending some money. They started spending the money and it, it, it all looked good. They looked like they had plenty of money, you know, they thought. And then they made these, you know, then they were getting a lot of pressure, you know, even pr pr pretty much straight away from, from backers because they had a, a super tight deadline of like um, six months, six months from where they, from, from the, when the 
from when the Kickstarter ended to when they were promising delivery of first units. Um, and so they really responded to that pressure in, in kind of the craziest possible way by saying, well, the prototype's not quite where it should be, but you know what? We think we can fix it all. We've got, you know, we've got the plastic frame done. We, we're pretty sure we know how it works. Let's just order everything we need to fulfill 15. Hey, well, you know, 20,000. Let's get that unit cost right down by ordering everything we need for like 20,000 drones. Um, right, right. And uh, knowing a bit about drones, um, I kind of, I was really interested in the fact that once they hit these stretch goals in their Kickstarter, they had to start adding additional features. <laughs> yeah. And then once they start adding additional features, uh, you know, as kind of anyone with a basic knowledge of drones knows that once you start adding things, it changes the weight, which changes the battery life, which means you need a new battery, which means it, the drone is heavier, which means, you know, all it's just kind of a domino effect. And these things need to be like very closely engineered. And so it was almost like a comedy of errors once they started trying to add these features. It sounded like it was. I mean, it was absolutely. And, and they were even adding features that they hadn't promised, but then people were suggesting and saying, oh, that would be a great idea like um, onboard um, micro SD card storage. They said, sure, that'd be a great idea. Let's get that in. And it's a bit like that episode of The Simpsons where, you know, Homer designs a car and they just keep adding features to it until it <laughs> until it's just the most horrendous mess. The Zano uh, had uh, um, digital image stabilization. That meant that when we put a, a better camera in with a, a better lens, which was a very, very wide angle lens, it allowed me to work on things like image stabilization by using windowing functions, allowed us to, to tilt. But that actual camera was one and a half grams heavier than the original one. Well, that one and a half grams doesn't sound like much for any sort of normal sized drone, but when your entire weight is only 65 grams, that one and a half grams is, is a very substantial percentage of the overall, uh, plus things like adding the SD card and uh, other bits and pieces all, all push the weight up. And the single biggest issue with the uh, you know, change in specs was the weight went up a little bit, which meant we had to go from one size motor to the next size motor, and that added a good 15 grams just because of the sizes of the motor. Um, so you end up uh, with the motors trying to lift, largely lift the extra weight of themselves rather than just the electronics. Still, the company did try to deliver. Reedman says they simply ran out of time and made the bad mistake of trying to manufacture a product that wasn't actually ready for public consumption. By the end of the thing, Reedman was having a nervous breakdown. I would often get to the office at uh, somewhere between 7 and 8 o'clock and I wouldn't leave till 12 to 14 hours later. Um, if I did leave for lunch, it would be to, to, to nick out and grab lunch and there was a couple of other, uh, a couple of my developers who were doing very, very similar sorts of times and uh, that there was no such thing as a weekend. It was just a Saturday and a Sunday. It was just a, a nice quiet day to get more work done. So, uh, you know, it was exponentially more difficult um, the closer and closer the timelines got and then as obviously we started to overrun the timelines and the pressure started to increase especially financial pressures within the company because obviously there was a substantial commitment to stock which presented a cash flow situation that simply piled the pressure on and uh, trying to deal with that and uh, this sort of development takes a clear calm mind to solve the problems and that became increasingly more difficult the more and more pressure there was to actually think clearly and, uh, and work through these problems systematically. To one point, um, my left arm and left hand started shaking and I had no control over what was going on. Um, I also had uh, severe chest pains and uh, you know, I felt like I was either heading towards a heart attack or a nervous breakdown. So it was at those sorts of points I uh, started going to the doctor and uh, you know, I was advised that I was substantially you know, overstressed. I needed to take some time to, to rest and recover. 
Uh, and unfortunately, three months later, I had no choice but to, to actually hand in my resignation. It's been um, almost almost uh, 12 weeks uh, now, and it's taken me most of this time just to to get back to feeling relatively normal. Um, when I first uh, left uh, talking, I was sleeping 14 hours a day. I'd get up and do a couple of hours and then get straight back to sleep. I, I was absolutely exhausted when I actually let myself realize how exhausted I was. And you know, sleep and recover, and uh, get back into my exercise. And uh, yeah, I'm starting to feel starting to feel relatively normal. Or, yeah, however subjective uh, the term normal is. In the end, the company did actually deliver some drones. They just couldn't do what they were supposed to. The battery life wasn't as good as was claimed. Most of the features didn't work. Half the time, it would only hover a few inches and fall over. Only a handful were actually shipped to backers. The rest are sitting in a warehouse in Wales where they'll likely be liquidated for parts. A lot of people had difficulty reproducing any of the videos that we produced. That was certainly never the intent. If, if I'm guilty of anything, it's of, of being enthusiastic. Specifications could have been pulled back a little bit to, to have reduced the, the amount we had to achieve. That's not much consolation for the project's backers, who so far have got nothing. Not only did Talking Group run through the two and a half million that they got, you know, it was about, you know, it was 2.1 by the time they got, um, you know, co- commissions and everything out of the way. Um, but they also had investment from these investments of a couple of hundred thousand by the time you had all the other, other people. And then they ran up bills of, you know, by the time they got to the end of it, they owed a million, another million pounds out to various suppliers, creditors, the, you know, the tax man, the government. Um, so, you know, not only was there nothing left in the bank, they had a you know a million pounds of uh, you know trade and expense you know t- trade creditors um, and they all want to get you know they all want to get paid out of the assets that the company does have and the company does have to be honest it has a whole shed load full of unfinished unflyable drones that have some value to them um, obviously the, the no one particularly wants the Zano case that's that's quite custom but there are chips and various you know bits of electronics in there that are worth something. Um, Right, but, right. but all that money is going to get parceled out to the creditors at a very low rate. And, and you know, backers, crowdfunding backers, um, at the moment, their legal status is extremely murky. And to be honest, it seems like they're not even, they don't even count as a creditor because in, in the way, in the, this, is, this is, needs to be tested in law, but the liquidator, the guy who takes over the, the d- disposal of the, the company's remaining assets in the UK, um, is of the opinion, his legal guys are of the opinion that the contract that backers have with the company is, doesn't correspond to a, to a sales contract. And Kickstarter would say the same, this is not a shop, you are not making a pre-order, you are, you are donating to this cause, and you, you know, it's, it's not a sales contract. If it's not a sales contract, then they haven't got a debt, and if they haven't got a debt, obviously they're not entitled to anything, even if there was money left over which there isn't. Reedman says he's been working the last few weeks on a new free project that will take some of the code he wrote to make Zano work and will make it public. He says people will be able to build their own Zano-type drone. People are always going to be angry. Um, I think the biggest uh, issue um, that, that I could foresee was lack of communication. Um, if people were more aware of what was going on and the uh, difficulties, I think they, a lot of people would have been a lot more understanding. Um, yeah, like I said, the, these things happen and uh, it's a matter of uh, you know, learning from mistakes and, and moving forward. And uh, um, on, on my part, for, for my part of the, the situation, I'm uh, working on a, a project to give to the community so that you know, 
although people may not get their Xana in the original form, um, I'm working on a, a, a project to give to the community so that the schools and the universities and students who were excited about Xana will still be able to you know, have a, a, a great deal of uh, the, the ideas and technology which I was working on, actually, in, in an open source format. So are you going to open source the code that w- that made the Xano run, or can you give me a little more detail about what that might look like? Sure. Um, the intellectual property, so all of the source code, hardware, etc., is owned by Talking. I, I don't have any access to any of that. Uh, when I resigned, I resigned completely. Uh, no shares, no say, no, no, no nothing. Um, but I'm working on a on a new project um, which I've designed specifically to allow um, hobbyists, etc., to be able to build the entire system themselves. So they're not going to have to buy, you know, uh, uh, pre-built boards, etc. Um, and it's a full Internet of Things open source project, which if people want to turn it into a drone. It's all the capabilities there to do that. It's got uh, basic computer vision and camera capabilities, and uh, you know, uh, um, the infrared reflectometry sensors, all that sort of capabilities there. It's obviously a very different form factor and I'm, and I'm building it from the ground up just as a, just as, you know, my way of apologising for what went wrong. A lot of people saw it as pre-ordering, uh, whereas Kickstarter isn't about pre-ordering, it's about backing a project. Um, so therefore there are some more risks associated with it and I'm sorry those risks weren't uh, better managed and better conveyed to people. Um, if, if people feel that any, anyone was misled, then you know, on my, my part of that, I certainly do apologise. <clears throat> so that's the story of Zano. But what about Kickstarter's greater role in all of this? There will be other Zanos. More on that in the second part of the show. So let's get this out of the way. Kickstarter paid Mark Harris to write his investigation. Harris says Kickstarter had no editorial input and in fact didn't treat him like he worked for Kickstarter. They treat him like any other journalist. The company says it was doing this simply for its own information and for the benefit of its backers. So Kickstarter did talk to you for this story, which makes sense. Um, Were they pretty forthcoming with you know everything that you wanted, or like, did it? How did it differ from reporting a different, a, a normal story? I didn't get any privileged information. Um, I asked for a lot of their internal documentation. I didn't get any of that. Um, you know about the Zano project. Um, I wanted, um, I wanted some of the the reports that people had when they had reported um, there was a problem with the Zano project. I didn't get any of those. Um, I did get an interview with um, Yancy Strickler, one of the founders, and that was great. Um, and that was, you know, that was obviously a key part of the story. But I didn't, I didn't feel that they gave me any extra access at all. And, and you know, to be fair, that was what they were saying. Said, so, you know, we, you know, we can't give you anything that we wouldn't give other people. We have our own privacy policies and our own internal policies on the way they work. So I thought that. Um, I thought, in a way, that was quite refreshing because you know what? Because it, then it just freed me again. It freed me again. I saying like great, I don't have to treat you any way differently, you haven't given me anything special, I can just go ahead and write the story as I would write. So, so in, in a way, that, was, that really made it feel much more like a normal story as well. This whole situation raises a few concerns for me, which, if you're not a journalist, maybe you don't care. But maybe you do. Here they are. This is access journalism in a big way. Kickstarter has said that this is the official account of what happened to Zano. When I told them I was doing this podcast, Kickstarter told me it's, quote, not doing any interviews around Mark's report. Mark does a fine job of explaining the whole thing, end quote. 
Kickstarter did agree to answer some of my questions by email. I asked them if they thought that the company would make any changes as a result of the Zano report. Kickstarter said, We've made a lot of changes to our system over the years as we've learned how projects work, and we're always looking for ways to make it better, so you can expect it to keep evolving. I asked them if they planned on doing this for future projects that might fail. They said, There's no immediate plans, but we think it was a useful experiment. And I asked them why they decided to hire Mark Harris instead of doing this investigation internally. They said, Obviously, we played a part in this story, so we wanted someone completely independent from the company who would have credibility when covering that aspect of it. And in general, the job seemed suited to someone with investigative skills. Mark was eventually approached by Kickstarter thanks to Glenn Fleischman, a veteran tech reporter who is an editor-at-large at The Wirecutter. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fleischman told me he thinks what Kickstarter did in this instance makes sense, but he worries that the company may be setting a precedent for corporate-funded journalism. When they approached me about it, I thought, this is a great idea if it's really hands-off. I love the ombudsperson person idea in general. They could probably do with having somebody under contract for a year or two at a time, uncancelable, with a blog that they post maybe on Medium, that would look at overall things. I think it's a great thing at any organization to have an outside person critically look at problems. Because Kickstarter has pursued this uh, public benefits corporation model, like Etsy and, and Patagonia and a few others, they're in a distinct position where they're making the case that what they do is not totally driven by money. And they've left a lot of money on the table over the years by fixing their fee at 5% and essentially having no add-on fees. So they are in a peculiar place. Like if ExxonMobil comes to you, there's different questions, right? If Kickstarter comes to you, you're like, well, these guys clearly aren't greedy because they could have gone to 6% or sold add-ons or done whatever. So they're not, not focused on money the way a lot of startups are. They do a lot of good, and uh, they want to hand over some cash to find out an answer without any strings attached. And I feel like it, it played out that way, too. It, it would be difficult with other companies. You know, again, like if Google or Microsoft or any of the dot-coms, uh, if Uber tried to hire reporters to investigate how it was dealing with contractors, you'd have a lot of questions. But Kickstarter in a failed campaign, there's a, it's a very different approach, I think. Right, and I think it's a very cool thing that they did. Um, I think that there, you know, there are potential pitfalls, and there's potential fallout from this that um, maybe Mark didn't encounter because it seemed like they were, you know, fairly forthcoming with him and hands off. Um, you know, he told me that they didn't give him all the documents he wanted, which, you know, they probably wouldn't give to any other journalist. But um, I asked them to speak on this podcast, and they said. Well, Mark's story is the story. Like, we don't need to talk to you. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if Facebook did this and said, okay, well, this guy that we hired to write a story about our thing is the story, and we don't need to talk to any other journalists, there's, you know, a potential problem there where they're kind of 
I wouldn't call it PR because it's not, because they were hands-off and because Mark's story doesn't make them look great and it does read very much like a piece of journalism. But do you think there is a potential problem there where, uh, you know, companies may try to do this and then they said, well, you know, we let this independent reporter do a thing so we don't care about your thing. Yeah, I think there's a washing potential there. Like, I don't know if you call it like reporter washing or something like that. And um, I noted, I, I wrote this ridiculously long editor's note. It's like seven or 800 words long to explain what my role was because it's so peculiar and also to state kind of the direction I was coming from. So, you know, Mark wrote, I think it was 13,000 word uh, investigative piece. And, and I said there, and I'll, and I'll be clear here too, is I f- was concerned that there could be either a perception or reality that Kickstarter could wash its hands of the affair by saying, look, we collected our 5%, $170,000 off this campaign, but here's what actually went on, so now everyone's happy, right? And and there is a little bit of that. There's a little like, okay, we did our thing. Like, we went over and above. We don't have a commitment to do this. The contract, the way they set it up, it isn't really between Kickstarter and, uh, and the customers. Like, Kickstarter backers are essentially signing a contract between them and the campaign, and Kickstarter is almost like a third-party proxy facilitator that collects a fee. And that's, I think that's illegal. It's both a, a legitimate, it's a, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but that's their legal stance, and I don't think it's been tested thoroughly in court. Uh, we had a decision in Washington State, where I live, about a Kickstarter campaign in which the state, I believe it was a uh, it was fraud charges brought, and I think the settlements already occurred, but it was one of the few cases, and, and Kickstarter was not a party to that. The Attorney General went directly after the project backer. So as a, a point of, you know, not case law, but as a precedent, it seems like Kickstarter has established its position as providing a somewhat neutral venue with some controls and oversight for egregious things, but asking people to be realistic about what goes on. And what's funny is I don't even think this was an uh, an egregious case of failure. There are some, some failures that have been much smaller, um, but there's things like a guy who created a lockpick uh, set that never, I don't know if it's ever actually delivered, and um, he had some issues. A guy produced a book and then like burned all the copies because he was going through difficulties and was going to go bankrupt fulfilling it or something. And like, So there's some really extreme cases in which things go wrong, but they tend to be a lot lower. I think Kickstarter here needed to say for something this big that totally imploded, no one's going to really get anything ostensibly or their money back. And you have um, the people behind it, either because of legal, like criminal and civil investigations that are still underway or situations, uh, and their own state of mind, they may never actually say what's going on. So backers are unfulfilled. And I, so I think it was good that Kickstarter pursued it. But there is that, I, I, circling back around, I do think there's the potential that them saying, well, we commissioned someone, here's the report, that's the public record, we don't need to do anything else. I hope they're going through internal soul-seeking about some of these issues. This is my initial thought as well. 2.3 million pounds just disappeared, and it's not the first time a big product has failed to deliver. In October, a 3D printer company called Pirate 3D raised 1.5 million and didn't fulfill most of its orders. The Coolest Cooler, which is one of the most popular Kickstarters of all time, it's a phone charging, speaker having mess of a cooler, is currently selling its product for $500 on Amazon because it burned through the 12 million it made on Kickstarter before it could actually ship its orders to crowdfunders. A Freedom of Information Act request I filed with the FTC found that there were 77 official complaints filed against Kickstarter. Countless others have been filed against the companies that actually fail. Surely the system is broken, right? That's the crazy thing. It's probably not. 
Ethan Malik, a researcher at Penn's Warden School of Business, recently published a study finding that just 9% of Kickstarters fail. The first thing that I've released so far has been a study of project backers and when they think a project has failed to deliver or not. Uh, I also have other studies on other aspects of this. Right. So um, your your study found that about 9% of Kickstarter projects fail to deliver. Um, what does fail to deliver mean usually? Yeah, so in this case, we were, you know, there's a bunch of ways a project could potentially fail, right? So um, a project could fail, and, and when we talk about fail to deliver, this means they don't deliver the product or reward that was promised to the backers at, ever, or if they do deliver it, it's so different from what was promised and worse that it doesn't count. So this is self-reported from the backers. But those projects that failed to deliver could still be successes, right? So a project that whose main goal was to uh, raise money to build a programming clubhouse for kids in, you know, in Detroit um, could have succeeded but could have been marked as failed in this case because uh, they didn't deliver the, the T-shirts that they promised to backers. I think there is the general impression that probably hardware and games are the worst, I just, but I can't find, there's no actual statistical significance there. Right, so hardware doesn't actually deliver less. I think that you're right in that there's a few things. One is a couple of the larger profile failures, such as the drone project, have come from that category, and they tend to have communities that talk a lot. So that might be part of the reason. Uh, there is pretty good evidence that I have that the, the more money a project raises and the more money it raises over its goal, the more delayed it's going to be. So I think that a lot of the big hits are hardware, games, product design. And so those have longer delays, and thus a lot more hand-wringing as they go along. Right? The number that actually fail is not actually that large, but I think people hear about them a lot while everyone's worrying about whether they'll deliver. If Kickstarter starts getting involved and shutting down projects that seem like they could fail, it could be opening itself to legal trouble. Currently, it operates more or less as a platform or a stock market. By staying hands-off, Fleischman says it's a platform, not an investment company. Kickstarter put the system in a while ago now that allows most campaigns to get posted without oversight. They originally reviewed everything. Then they switched to a mostly automated system, and some flags will kick up. They won't tell you what, so that some small percentage of campaigns that are posted actually go into review, and human beings look at them. And this has apparently worked out quite well for them. I believe Indiegogo has no review process, but they will review things later if there's complaints or if they spot something, too. So Kickstarter has aired on the automatic side to allow more projects to happen. Uh, Uber wants more drivers. They'll do background checks and other things, but they want every driver they can on the road because that sustains their model. But I think it's possible to turn that dial towards more safety, awareness, and so forth without violating the fundamental tenets of the site and removing that bad PR aspect. You know, if you're, maybe you have 5% fewer projects, 5% fewer drivers, but if those, that 5% is mostly the ones who are most problematic, does that make your platform worse or better? I'd argue better. And, um, and I think the sites are starting to figure that out. You know, when you wind up with 10 active lawsuits as a ride-sharing company, uh, you know, making that number up, but, you know, there's a lot of active stuff happening. You have all these things happening at the same time. You have to say, at what point does growth um, is offset by making better decisions about how restrictive we are about what goes on the platform? Right, right. And it seems like you could make that same argument for Kickstarter. Like, at what point, how many failed projects do we need um, before we start kind of vetting them in yeah. some way. and there's a big difference between there's legitimately failed projects where someone's ambitious, They everything they did is right, and it goes astray. And I think you see backers in those campaigns say, I'm sorry I'm out money, but you know, 
I thought this was ambitious. The person talked about how difficult this is going to be, and it didn't work out. That's life. And I've been involved in projects. The first thing I backed on Kickstarter six years ago hasn't happened yet. I'm still delighted to have given the money because the person behind it has done so many other great things, and that was supposed to be a boost for their career, and it did help them. So it absolutely fulfilled what I want. There's other stuff where I never got something, and I you know, pledge 50 or 100 bucks, and I'm peeved because I feel like they pissed it away. Predicting who is going to fail is really, really hard. So it's not clear what Kickstarter would even do. The reasons are all over the board. I mean, working with third-party vendors, uh, Chinese New Year came up a lot, extra fulfillment costs that weren't expected, partners who stopped performing or walked away, debates over intellectual property. So I, I would love to see a better method of helping people avoid failure, but I don't, can't think of an easy way to do that. And the, there's a cost, right, which is as soon as you start trying to help projects succeed, you're taking liability for that kind of one way or another. And then does that mean, you know, that you start having to curate your projects and that lowers the opportunity of outsiders to kind of come in and raise money? Right. Yeah, Kickstarter seems to get a lot of flack when something like this happens. Um, and they say, you know, hey, we're just a platform, we're not a store. And that's similar to the argument given by, say, like Uber, for instance. Um, you know, they say we're a platform, we're not a taxi service. Do you think that that's the only way a company like this can actually survive? Yeah, well, I think there's a big difference between the sort of Ubers of the world and the and Kickstarter. A Kickstarter is much more along the lines of a stock market um, than it is a platform like Uber in that it's a marketplace where it connects buyers and sellers of goods that are still being made. And there is some danger in holding the marketplace accountable because they can't check all the stuff. And if they start checking, it lowers the amount of people sort of involved. I think there, when we talk about Uber and some of these uh, on-demand economy things, there's sort of some legal wrangling over not being responsible and working with independent contractors. I think that's a very different zone. And I, I think, you know, it, I think that's a... That's a, a bit of a sketchier argument in some ways. Right, right. Okay. Um, do, you, do you see crowdfunding being threatened by any of these kind of high-profile failures? Everything I've read suggests that it's only going to get much larger. But, um, you know, if people, people do look to Kickstarter at, in, on some level as a store, or at least maybe some people do, um, and if, you know, if, you, if these things keep failing maybe it won't grow at the rate that has been projected. Yeah, except I can't find indications that failure rates are going up, right? So, I mean, if, if we go back, you know, two years, we would have been hand ringing over a different set of failures. Um, so, I mean, I think this stuff is, is bad. I mean, I think, but I think that, you know, I mean, there's, I guess there's two classes of failures I'd worry about. One is the kind of failure that you saw in Xano Drone, which was uh, the, that there was an effort to deliver, at least as far as anyone could tell. I, you know, the jury's still out. But at least that was my impression. Again, I have no inside knowledge on this at all. Uh, that, that there was at least an effort to deliver. I mean, they're still talking to you on the phone, for example. Right? right. Um, and then there's the, the other thing, which is fraud. And fraud is very, very low. So my studies showed fraud rates are less than like less than 0.25% of the money going to large Kickstarter projects goes to projects that might be fraudulent. So fraud is very low, but the failure rate I don't think is increasing. I just think that you know, there, there is a constant and steady stream of ideas failing. Um, but that's kind of to be expected. So I think what will happen is you'll see, uh, as people get educated, the people who aren't willing to deal with that kind of risk will drop out. 
But when I asked people about whether they'd back another project on Kickstarter, uh, 73% of people who backed failed projects agreed or strongly agreed that they would do so. There's also evidence that Kickstarter is a force for good in the traditionally white male-dominated startup scene. So anyone can come with an idea, but there's only a certain number of people who can come with resources to get them, raising venture capital, getting a bank loan, getting angel investment, getting a, you know, a grant. And it turns out that you know, basically, if you study something like VC, despite the fact that somewhere between 30 and 40% of uh, U.S. businesses are started by women, Somewhere around 2 to 3% of VC-backed companies have female co-founders. And, and we have similar stats for racial imbalance, ethnic imbalance, class. Basically, unless you are, you know, generally if you're a white guy from a couple top schools, you have much more access to opportunity than anyone else. And so, you know, there are a lot of reasons why this is the case, and they're not necessarily straight out racism or misogyny or anything else. There's a lot of systemic reasons that we could go into about why this happens. But what's so exciting about crowdfunding is that it, in theory, allows anyone to be able to put an idea out into a marketplace and get funding without having to go through those gatekeepers that instill all sorts of bias. And I found this, and women are more likely to succeed. The same exact project by a woman versus a man is 13% more likely to succeed in raising funds uh, in crowdfunding. And in any other circumstance, women underperform men in terms of raising funds. So I think what the most exciting stuff to look at is where are the good ideas coming from? Are they coming from the usual suspects or coming from a broader source? How do we increase the number of chances people have to innovate, to start new companies, to start new artistic ventures? And I think that's where the exciting research needs to be. There's, uh, using Kickstarter and, and things like it as a picture of innovative, creative people trying to launch new things and understanding more about where good ideas come from and how do we help them thrive. And so maybe Zano is just a sad story. As Kickstarter says over and over again, it's not a store. But when flashy videos seem to show a real product and donation levels promise rewards, well, it's hard to tell. There are lessons here, though. Mark Harris says consumers should do their research, and if they know a lot about a subject, they should chime in. Well, if you're going to invest in a Kickstarter, um just see what other people are saying, not only on the site, so read the updates there, read the comments, um, but just do some web search on the actual company and the people involved. Is, are people generally excited about it? Are, um, you look at communities on Facebook, look at communities on Reddit, just see what people are talking about and the concerns they have. There are always skeptical voices there. If you have a concern, and, it, and if you think you have some sort of evidence or something that you are really concerned about, report it to Kickstarter at the bottom of every page. There's a report this project. You might not know what that means, but report this project means, hey, I've got some questions about this. You know, flag it up. Be uh, an involved crowdfunder. Be an involved batter, um, backer. Put your passion and your knowledge to use for the community. And entrepreneurs should realize what they're getting themselves into before they start a campaign. You never know. It just might be successful. As excited as you are about it now, think of the pain and hassle if you have to, if you have to fold it halfway through. It would just be, you know, it, it, will, it, will, it will suck up your life. Um, for better or worse, and you really want it to be for better. Reedman says he's learned his very expensive lesson. Would I uh, crowd? Would I've crowdfunded it if, if uh, had the chance to to do it over? No, I wouldn't have done. Um, nothing against the community. The community were absolutely fantastic, but adding the expectations and then having to communicate with twelve and a half thousand people was a very very substantial load. In total, I think talking employed about twenty seven people. Um, 
of only 10 were actually in the development side. The rest of it was in administration and customer services and marketing and everything else. So it was a very uh, substantial load to actually support and communicate with the backers. And, and as everybody knows, talking didn't do a very good job of uh, communicating with the backers. So it's a, it, it, it's a difficult situation, but no, I would not. You've had the chance over, I would not have crowdfunded the project. I would have let it uh, get all the way through to a full matured product and then uh, you know, um, look for different uh, funding avenues. All right, and that's our show. Thank you for sticking with me. Uh, This weekend, I'm going to the SpaceX Hyperloop Pod Design Challenge at Texas A&M University. So please check back with me next week for that story. If you do like the show, please tell your friends we are trying to grow our audience. And please rate us on iTunes. It sounds lame, but it really does help us out. Um, And if you have any questions or anything, you can email us at letters at motherboard.tv. All right, thanks. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.